Good morning again, everyone. Welcome to our church for those of you who are joining us a little bit later. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's crazy to think in seven days, literally in one week, next week, next Sunday, it's going to be Christmas Eve. It's like so fast. And in another week, in another seven days, we're literally going to be spending the very last day of 2023 together. And um, just such a blessing to be able to celebrate all of these momentous occasions with you all here today. Uh, but as we move forward um, in the Advent season, we're actually going to be taking um, a look at one of my favorite passages in, in the book of Micah. Um, and that's in chapter 5, uh, verses 2 to 5. And I think one of the beautiful things that this passage teaches us is it teaches us about the Messiah, about how God chooses leaders and how they don't always come from high and mighty places, but sometimes, or most of the times, they actually come from very small and insignificant places. And one of our youths, um, she just finished reading the entire Lord of the Rings um, series, but she never watched the movies. Um, and I must shamefully admit that I watched the movies, but I never finished the books. Uh, but I'm working through them right now. I'm halfway through Two Towers. And as I, as I was reading the, through the book and thinking about the movie, I think it's kind of crazy to imagine, right? If, if, if you're to imagine the Lord of the Rings was actually real life, it's crazy to imagine that the world is like teetering on the edge of absolute destruction. It's teetering on the edge of darkness. And it's saved by some of the smallest and unlikely heroes, uh, the hobbits. Now, hobbits, for, for those of you who are, who are unfamiliar, they're sometimes called halflings because they're about half the height of other men. I think that's you know, kind of offensive, but um, they're lovers of peace and quiet. They're lovers of good-tilled earth, and they just enjoy the simple pleasures of life. And in Tolkien's world, um, they're often seen as insignificant. They're often overlooked by the greater powers and by the other nations of Middle-earth. In fact, as, as I was reading through the books, one common theme that just happens over and over and over again is people would see these hobbits and be like, what are these people? I've never seen these before. The Shire? Never heard of this. And so these people are, for the most part, unknown. And what I love about how, how the story goes, um, you know, as Tolkien progresses, uh, progresses the, for, uh, the story forward, um, also random fact, Tolkien is actually a deeply devout Christian. And what Tolkien does is he uses the hobbits to flip our expectations about heroes. It's to flip our expectation about power, right? If we read fairy tales or if we watch action movies, the heroes of those tales are always people with incredible power, people with incredible skill, right? They might be warriors or kings who wield sword or political power. But what always amuses me is that you see this desire for power in kids, too, right? Kids, they want to be princes, they want to be princesses, they all want to be warriors, heroes who slay the dragon. And I think even for us as adults, these are some things that we still hold dear into our hearts. We respect people who hold power, we respect people who have authority, whether that be political, social, or economic, but Tolkien flips the script. It's not Aragorn, the mighty king of Gondor who saves. It's not Gandalf the White, who's the greatest wizard in Middle-earth. It's not the magical elves. It's not the unshakable fortitude of the dwarves. It's simply just a pair of hobbits. They have no magical abilities. They have 
no combat experience, they rule no kingdom, they wield no power whatsoever, but these are the ones that defeat the Dark Lord Sauron, right? These are the ones who bring light back into Middle-earth. And so as we're going to look at our sermon today, as in, you know, in, in Micah 2 to 5, we're going to see how Advent is not only just about, how do I say this? Let me, let me see if I can phrase this correctly. Advent not only points us towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but Advent also teaches us about God's upside-down kingdom, about God's upside-down values. And so let's take a look at our passage today from uh, Micah chapter 5, uh, verses 2 to 5. And he reads, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of his Lord, uh, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians evade our land and march through our fortresses. I find it uh, quite ironic how, how this passage talks about the extraordinary news of the coming Savior, but at the heart of this extraordinary news is the insignificant origins of this coming King, of this coming Messiah, right? In verse 2, we read that it is from Bethlehem that this King will come. And if Bethlehem is known for anything, it is known for being unknown. It's small, it lacks any sort of political power, and because it's pretty well known for being unknown, it's very bizarre that this is the place of a king's origin. One would expect that the king to be born in Jerusalem. And it's very bizarre, especially you know, considering that this king is going to have worldwide influence, it's pretty bizarre that this king is going to be born in this pretty insignificant town. Yet it is here, in this humble town, that the Messiah, God's chosen one, is foretold to be born. And I think this choice by God, it's, it's not arbitrary. It's a deliberate statement from God about what God's kingdom and what God's leadership are actually like. I think in this world, power is often measured by a person's charisma. It might be measured by their power, their wealth, or their might, but the thing is, God sees something else. What God sees as truly powerful and successful is a person whose greatness is their humility, whose strength comes from gentleness, and whose authority comes from service. And what this prophetic voice of Micah does is that it, it turns our gaze away from the grand cities and mighty palaces and all these, you know, fantastic things, and it forces our eyes to look at this small, insignificant town. It draws our attention away from what the world thinks of power and prestige, and it allows us to look at what God believes is truly good, 
And so when we look at our Lord Jesus, we see that he's not a ruler who will dominate the world through force. He's not one who's going to assert his authority through intimidation. Instead, he is the one who will lead with compassion, serve with love, and rule with God's righteousness. And if this is how God sent his chosen Messiah, then the question for us is, how does this change how we live our lives? If we are created in the image of God, if we call ourselves as Christians, if we call ourselves as the sons and daughters of God, then this Advent season invites us to rethink our definitions of success, to rethink our definitions of greatness. I think in American culture, we are drawn to what is flashy, we are drawn to what is, is expensive. In Chinese culture, we are drawn to status, to prestige. But in God's kingdom culture, God does not congratulate the proud, God does not congratulate the mighty, instead God's culture lifts up the lowly and the meek. God reminds us that the path to true greatness often begins with a step down, not a step up. And this is what we see through the birth of our Lord, Jesus Christ. God does not choose to cling to his divine nature, but he instead humbles himself by taking on the form of a servant. Christ, ultimately, rather than ruling the world through force, he ultimately dies naked on a cross, shamefully exposed for the entire world to see. And God said, that is what is good. And because of that humility, Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father through his humility, not through his domination, not through his power. Now the question is, as we realize this and as we look inwards to ourselves, well, does this mean that you know, we should stop working hard at school? Does this mean we should stop advancing in our careers? Well, of course not, right? There's nothing wrong with excelling. But we have to realize that is not high on God's list of greatness. It's not in his top three. And if it's not high on God's list, then it should follow that it shouldn't be high on ours as well. And so what is on the top of God's list? Humility. The humility to say no to our desires and to say yes to what God wants us to do. The humility to say no to ourselves and to say yes to our neighbor, even if it inconveniences us. The humility to deny ourselves. The humility to pick up our crosses and follow God. That is the, that is the greatness that God truly desires. And so through this message, we see that by prioritizing humility, it's one way that God flips the scripts by reminding us that what the world sees as garbage is actually what God sees as treasure, where weakness, humbleness, and humility are the qualities of our Lord Jesus and the qualities that God desires to, de to develop within us. But that's not the only way that God flips the script. Um, God also flips the script by how we, as humans, try to find security in this life. Um, if we look deeper into the verse, if we, if we just take a look at verses 3 to 4, you see, Micah, he tries to remind the Israelites that this coming king is a king who will bring comfort, he'll bring security, but this is what he says. Starting from verse 3, he says, Therefore, 
Israel will be abandoned until the time when he who is uh, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join with the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. And I think this is such a wonderful message of hope to the Israelites because historically, you know, looking back at this time, they're about to be, you know, they're about to be annihilated. They're about to be absolutely destroyed by this more powerful nation. What God wants to remind them during that time is for the Israelites to put their trust in him. Even if it means that they're going to face setback and failure, right, because it does say that the towns will be abandoned, God will still come to their rescue. God will still bring a king who will gather them together so that they can live securely in safety. But what did the Israelites choose to do historically in the midst of their anxiousness, in the midst of their stress? What did they choose to do? Rather than turning to God for comfort and for security, they began to look elsewhere. They began to form political alliances and develop military strategies. And from a worldly perspective, if there's a nation that's about to come to destroy you, hey, in a worldly wisdom, that's good to do. Make alliances, right? Develop strategies. But that's not what God wanted them to do. They also began to pray to false gods, believing that these idols would save them as well. And when we look forward into human history, you know, this is actually true. None of this is made up. The prophet Isaiah, he reminded the people living in Judah, don't form an alliance with Egypt, but to trust in God's timing, to trust in God's plan. But what did they do? They didn't trust. They made an alliance with Egypt, which from a very human perspective sounds great because Egypt is also another superpower. And that led to the entire nation of Israel and to the entire nation of Judah being annihilated exiled to a foreign country. Rather than trusting in God's power, they trusted in the power of other nations. They trusted in the power of false gods. And the thing is, even in our lives here and now, we, you know, we still do the same thing. When we face difficulties in life, do we actually turn to the Lord? And I think most of us here would answer yes, of course. Like during difficult times, of course, I turn to the Lord. You know, I go to the Lord in prayer. I I tell to him my requests, my needs. But when we do turn to the Lord in prayer, here's the critical question. What do we pray for? Do we pray that God will give us what we think will solve our problems? You know, Lord, if you only give me more of this, more of that, Lord, if you, if you only gave me more money, then, then this problem would be solved. You know, you know, Lord, if you just give me what I desire, what I think will solve my problems, then I will be okay. Is that how our prayers sound like? And so where do we go during times of fear? Where do we go during times of uncertainty to find security? What do we do during these periods to find comforts? Do we, like the Israelites, trust in worldly solutions? Do we trust in worldly wisdom to solve our problems? Or do we trust in the promises of God? Do we trust in who God says he is, that he loves us, that he cares for us? See, in the passage from Micah, we see that this future king will lead us like a shepherd. And I I just find it so beautiful, right? Because Jesus says so himself in John chapter 10. Jesus declares to all of us that I 
and the Good Shepherd. And this imagery is, is, is not just powerful, but it's true. You see, a shepherd guides their sheep. And there are times when the sheep will walk through dark valleys, a time where the sheep will enter into very dangerous situations, but the shepherd is always there beside them and protecting them. But the key thing is, as long as the sheep stay close to the shepherd, they'll be safe, even in the most dangerous situations. And if the sheep trust their shepherd, then it's only a matter of time until the shepherd leads them out of dangerous situations, out of dark valleys, and into green pastures, into life. But what happens if the sheep begins to think that I know better than my shepherd? What happens if the sheep begins to run away thinking that I can save myself, I don't need this guy, I can do it on my own? What happens if the shepherd is trying to guide the sheep to the, to the right and the sheep run left? Well, they would die. They might get eaten by wolves, they might find themselves trapped in a pit, and their chances of actually making it to safety is practically zero. I believe it's the same in our own lives. Instead of a wolf, Satan is ready to attack us. He's, he's always ready. And, what, and when troubles fall upon us and we think that the Lord has left us, that is when he is the closest. And that is when we should stick to him all the more. Because the enemy is waiting for us. To, he's waiting for us to uh, leave our shepherd. He's waiting for us to think that we know better than our Lord. And so when we begin to actually follow Christ as our shepherd, one of the first things that change is our prayer life. As Jesus is about to be arrested, he prays this to the Father, and we often say this part. We say, you know, we often hear Jesus say, you know, Lord, if it's within your will, take this cup from me, right? We've all heard that verse before. But do we follow it up with the second half of the verse? Do we follow it by saying, but not my will, but yours be done. Lord, this cup is heavy, but not my will. Yours be done. Lord, I'm going through difficulty. I, I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation, but if you tell me what to do, I will do it. Lord, I'm facing financial hardship, but I will trust in you. And if you, if you don't open doors for me right now, that is okay. I would be appreciative, Lord, if you open doors for me, but if you don't, then let your will be done and not mine, because I know that you move everything according to your good and perfect will. I'll completely trust, I'll completely submit myself because you are the God of love who cares for me, especially when everything is dark, especially when everything is anxious. And so through this trust, something dramatic happens in our hearts. And I love how Micah, he ends this verse in uh, verse 5. He says this, that when we completely trust in God and allow him really to be the actual Lord over our lives, where we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, this is what Micah says. He says, he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. If we translate that to our more modern context, God will be your peace when trouble invades your life and marches through your life. God is the one 
who will fight for you. God is the one who will defend you. And when we allow God to be our Lord, it doesn't mean that troubles don't come our way. But if we look at the verse carefully, right, because God still says the Assyrians will march through their lands, but something's different here. God will be your peace, even in the midst of difficult situations. He will be our peace. And the question I, I've thought about for a long time is, hey, you know, we talk about peace, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. How come sometimes we as Christians, we don't experience this peace? Or at least, why haven't I experienced this peace in the past? And Novi, Stephen, and I, you know, during our, our last staff meeting on Wednesday, we were actually sharing about this and actually had a conversation with my friend about the fruits of the Spirit um, a few weeks ago. And see, the thing is, if, if the Holy Spirit is in us, right, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace, then why don't we experience this more often? And when I was talking to my friend, I, I gave him this analogy, and I hope it's helpful for you all to kind of conceptualize this. You know, imagine for, for a moment, uh, you all moved into my house, right? All of you guys, you know, welcome. You, know? you all moved into my house, and you see that it is an absolute mess, right? There's just garbage and clothes all over the floor. I, I clearly haven't vacuumed or mopped in at least a decade. And so, you know, seeing this mess, you're like, wow, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe like Brandon, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll help you clean up. And so you begin to, you know, throw out my trash. You, you begin to put things uh, back where they belong. Uh, but the moment you start cleaning up, you know, I tell you like, oh, sorry, no, 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 you, you, you can't throw out that garbage. It, it means a lot to me, so just like, just like leave it where it is. Just leave it on the floor. Or as you're cleaning, I start to like throw clothes and, and more garbage in your way on the floor. And you begin to look at me. You're like, you know, like, Brandon, what, like, what are you doing? Are you insane? Like, you know, I'm trying to clean here. Why are you making this house more of a mess as I'm trying to like sweep and, and you know, vacuum or whatnot? But that's actually what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. The Holy Spirit is trying to throw out the garbage and sweep the floors. And the way that the Holy Spirit does this is sometimes through conviction, where the Holy Spirit asks us, hey, Brandon, why do you keep polluting and making a mess of the temple in your heart while I'm trying to clean it? And so at first, that forces me to change how I live my life to begin with. I have to remember to stop polluting the temple in my heart. But the Holy Spirit also brings to us, in, in very uncomfortable situations, the idols that are in our lives, the idols that we actually hold higher than God himself. And so, for example, if, if through God's will I lose my job, how do I respond to this? Is a job important? Absolutely, right? I need to eat, I need to pay rent, I need to be able to survive. But let's take it one step back. Who is the one who gave me the job to begin with? God. And if I were to find another job, who's the one who gave me that opportunity? God as well. But it's easy for us to lose sight of this and turn our own occupation into our own source of security, into our own source of peace. It's easy to turn our occupation into an idol itself, thinking that it will solve our problems. But we have to remember, it was God who gave us the security to begin with. It was God who gave us this peace to begin with. And so even in the midst of losing a job, there is peace. Because I know 
who is actually in control? Our Lord, our Savior. And so what a big part about, you know, when it comes to peace, a big part about finding peace, real peace with God, is to first, hey, to stop polluting the temples and our hearts, but just as important as that, it's to finally stop trusting our idols, to realize that our idols cannot bring us security, but instead to trust in our good shepherd who leads us into still waters. And so brothers and sisters, if you, if you want to experience this peace, then I encourage you to truly trust, to truly trust in God, in God alone, to leave the chaos of this world and to enter into the peace that comes from our Lord. And so as we're, we're about to enter into a time of prayer here, I, I just want to invite us to, you know, experience, if you can, this peace that comes from God. And to do that, you know, coming all the way back to the start of our sermon, it requires us to have humility. The humility to say no to our will, but to say yes to God's will. And as we submit our will to God and to trust that he indeed is in control during the good and the bad, then we'll begin to experience something bizarre in our hearts. We'll truly begin to feel a sense of deep, deep peace. And I think this is a peace that I've tasted once and, and a peace that I truly desire all of us to taste, even, even if it's just for, for a moment. Um, so I just want to invite us, as we enter into a time of prayer, um, why don't we just come and, and pray for this today to allow the peace of God to enter into our hearts. So please come together um, as we pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for allowing us to, to experience this peace through the Holy Spirit. We thank you that it is a fruit through the Holy Spirit, something that we can all experience, something that we can all have. We thank you that you are our good shepherd. We thank you that you have taught us that true greatness is not found in forging our own path, but in following yours. And so I pray, Lord, that as we come together as brothers and sisters, that we'll continue to encourage one another to live a life that is pleasing to you, to submit ourselves to you, and to submit ourselves to one another. Father, you, you have shown us what is good, what is truly good through your own son, through his humility, and through his death on the cross, and also his faithfulness to you and his faithfulness to us. So let us look to him, knowing that not only is salvation found in Christ alone, but peace is found in him alone. Joy is found in him alone. And Father, as we're, as we're sitting here today, allow us to experience that. What a wonderful message it is to know that everything we have deeply longed for can be found in you. Lord, we just want to thank you for gathering us here today. Pray this all in your precious son's name. Amen.